Radio Mano Papachango. It's time for Aroma. It's been too long. How about a commercial free Aroma for you coming at you on Tuesday? I'll probably post this today or tomorrow. I've got my little espresso here. I got some songs I want to play for you. I got some issues to discuss. Uh, Let's see. Here's the thing. I'll take this post-it note off my computer. Vaccines. People have been asking me what I think about this whole vaccine debate. And I think I think it's one of those things that uh, where both sides are right. And I don't and, and I'm not uh, avoiding the issue. Here's what I because I, I have friends, some very, very close friends who are very intelligent people and know a lot more about this than I do, who are anti-vaxxers. <clears throat> um and I respect what they're saying. One of the things that they say is that they've, I shouldn't say they say, they've informed me of is that the number of vaccines that kids are given is four or five times what it was when I was a kid. So you hear about uh, the measles and the mumps and chicken pox and smallpox. Uh, I think those are the main ones. Uh, people, the HPV vaccine has come out recently, but that's more for adults, I think, or at least, you know, sexually active teenagers and people in their 20s. Um, But apparently the number of vaccines that kids are given now is, you know, 40, 50, 60 uh, of them altogether. I didn't know there were that many communicable diseases that we really needed to be that worried about in the modern world. And so their point is research really hasn't been done on uh, how all these different vaccines might interact, how the immune system could respond when you've got four or five of them pumped into a kid at the same time. Um, And I think that's a legitimate point to make. Uh, I also think that it is un questionable that the medical industrial complex has a huge amount of power over political systems in the western world and everywhere else and they are amoral when it comes to increasing profit uh like most companies they don't give a shit how it affects human welfare and well-being So if there is any indication that maybe all these vaccines might have um, detrimental effects, I don't trust the industries to police themselves. In fact, I think that the um, trajectory of those industries, like all industries, is to increase market share, increase profitability, and therefore increase the number of vaccines that are given, increase the 
belief that uh, that there are dangers that need to be protected against uh, as a way of selling more of their quote unquote protections, right? Um, so the, you know, anti-vaxxers come at it with this perspective and I think their skepticism and their distrust of these companies and their distrust of government agencies that are purportedly there to protect us from those industries is well-founded. Honestly, just as I think that most people who are uh, proponents of various conspiracy theories, I sympathize with them because I think that the impulse underlying uh, what they're arguing is a skepticism about the information that's presented to them. And I think that skepticism is healthy and well-founded. And man, they're right to be skeptical of the stories that they're told by the mainstream media and the government and advertising for these major corporations. So it's a weird thing because I support uh, that kind of energy, that kind of questioning. And yet I think often it leads to absurdities like the flat earth people. Uh, I think that's clearly just fucking ridiculous. Uh, you know, Galileo was not in on the conspiracy guys. Um, but anyway, uh, getting back to vaccines... I don't know that this is a flat earth situation. I I think that they probably have some uh, legitimate critiques. And I think there are probably some dangers to vaccines, even when used uh, without this sort of commercial exaggeration. Even if it were just the five or six major vaccines that I got 50 years ago as a kid, there's probably still some danger. But I think the problem is that like many things in large-scale society, there are, uh, how can I say this? It's like there are things that will, if if there were no vaccines, let's say 20 million kids would die from chicken pox and various things in a given year. Um, And with the vaccines... 3,000 kids will die from bad reactions to the vaccines. Now, as a policymaker, you look at that and you say, okay, my job is to choose between these two shitty fucking alternatives, but clearly 3,000 kids dying is better than 20 million kids dying, so give the chicken, give the vaccines. Now, with social media and, you know, the way these things flare up, those parents of those 3,000 kids can all find each other online. They can raise a lot of hell about this. They can put up pictures of their cute little kid who died three days after getting the vaccination or who, you know, has some sort of brain damage or what have you. And that, because it's so alarming, that becomes well known. It, It spreads like wildfire. And then you have parents refusing to take that risk with their kids even though it's a very, very, very small risk, when you have massive numbers of people taking that risk, you're going to have a significant number of people 
who get fucked up, who get hurt. That doesn't change the fact that it's a minuscule risk. It's a very small risk. So it's the same reasoning uh, by which people buy lottery tickets, for example. The odds of you winning are infinitesimal, but you hear about the winners all the time. And they're always winners, so it could be me. Rationally, it's a terrible way to go through life making decisions. But emotionally, it resonates with us. And so it's very effective. So what do I think about vaccines? Do I believe these parents who say, my kid took the vaccine and two days later she got this terrible fever and then she had seizures and then she died? Yeah, I believe it. Do I believe the vaccine caused that? It certainly could have. Now, maybe that kid got bit by a spider that the parent didn't see at exactly the same time because, okay, you say, well, what's the, what are the odds of a kid getting bit by a spider two days after taking a vaccine? They're really low. Granted, they're really low. But if 100 million kids take vaccines, how many of them are going to get bit by spiders two days later? A few. And how many of those spiders are going to be fatal? Uh, maybe a couple depending if you're in Australia or wherever there are fatal spiders or Topanga. I think they're red, what are they called? Red widows. Yeah. I think there are talks, there are fatal lethal spiders around here somewhere. So you see my point, it's a mathematical argument where you say, well, I'm, I'm, I understand that that makes sense mathematically, but I'm not going to risk my kid being that one in a million who dies from this. And so I pull out of it. And so you, enough people pull out of it, then we're fucked. Uh, it's, it's like in war, you know, generals are like, they have to make these, these decisions where they say, okay, I send these 5,000 guys to attack on the left flank. That'll distract the enemy. Those 5,000 guys are probably going to die. It's a suicide mission, but it's going to save the 100,000 who are coming up on the right flank and the civilians and so on. So you say you make that calculation and you send 5,000 guys on a hopeless mission to be killed. That's what generals get paid to do. And if that's why you have to follow orders in the military, because if each of those guys was making a rational decision and had the information, those guys are going to say, Oh, you want me to die so 100,000 other people don't have to die? I get the math, but fuck you. Right? So these are these fault lines, these, these fissures between what makes sense for the individual or for the fam, you know, individual family versus what makes sense for society at large. And when those things come into conflict, shit gets weird. Because, yeah, it's like, uh, you you know, they say never don't panic in, a, in an emergency. But when people panic, then there's no way to control mass behavior. And if you can't control mass behavior, if everybody's running toward the exits, then nobody gets out. Whereas if we calmly and um, in, in an organized fashion go through the exits, then more of us will get out. But if you're toward the back of the line and you're like, what, I'm supposed to stand in line while those fuckers up ahead of me go through the exit? Hell no, that fire's too hot, the smoke's coming in, and you break ranks and then uh, everything falls apart. So that's what I think about vaccines. I think both sides are right.
one of the many interesting and conflict generating qualities of being a human being is that we are both individual animals and herd animals. So generally you can get people to behave as if they're in a herd. You can get them to do the same things, buy the same crap, root for the same teams, uh, eat the same foods. You can manipulate mass behavior pretty easily in human beings. Um, but sometimes they break rank. They break ranks. Sometimes individuality um, will come to the fore, and that's something that we celebrate. American culture celebrates the individual, the lone wolf, the you know the the person who breaks ranks and and does his own thing, as they said in the sixties. Um, but that can be quite dangerous as well, uh, especially if we're talking about the Unabomber or, um, you know, people who refuse to go along with the... I had a friend who was a, a sheep farmer, and I said something about sheep being stupid, and he said, no, man, they're not stupid. Sheep are actually quite clever, but we make sure to kill them the minute they show any intelligence. Once a, a sheep sticks his head under the fence and figures out that he can go under the fence, you have to kill that one because otherwise he'll lead all the sheep under the fence and then your fences are destroyed. So it's not that sheep are dumb. It's that the smart ones get eliminated. All right, I'm going to play a song for you. This song, I was reminded of this song when I was talking with the ethnomusicologist in Thailand the other day, Greg Simmons, I think his name was. Um couple episodes back and we were talking about films and he mentioned until the end of the world a film I haven't seen since it came out probably 25 30 years ago um really interesting film and a fascinating soundtrack uh yeah and this song is from that soundtrack it's called humans from earth it's by t-bone burnett and um the song the lyrics are quite illuminating and interesting it's about humans arriving on a planet uh sort of the way columbus came to hispaniola and and uh that first contact with the native people this is uh, a story of first contact between humans and some sort of extraterrestrial life form on another planet humans from earth t-bone burnett from the soundtrack to until the end of the world Light years away, where everything multiplies at an amazing rate. Out here in the universe, buying real estate. Hope we haven't gotten here too late. Fresh in the water 
needs We brought along some gadgets for you to see Here's a crazy little thing we call TV Do you have electricity with humans from Earth? TV, do you have electricity? Yeah. Uh, I want to turn over the mic to a guy who sent me uh, a voice memo shortly after the episode with Greg Simmons, where I mentioned um, uh, the cannibalism and um, domestication of animals, the, Marvin Harris's a theory that cannibalism occurs among societies that are protein deficient. Um, anyway, this guy sent me the following voice memo. Check it out. Hi, Chris. This is Tom McAuliffe here. Just listened to your podcast with Greg Simmons and just want to make a comment about um, the idea that we were sometimes cannibals, humans were cannibals because of protein deficiency and the need for getting that protein um, that sounds like bullshit to me because when you look at the science about protein it's virtually impossible to be protein deficient if you're getting your calories so you can take just about any form of food for example fruit only and with just a little bit of leafy greens you can eat that and if you're getting your calories, enough calories to get you through, you cannot, you will not be protein deficient. You'll get your cal you'll get your protein from your amino acids. And I know this for a fact because I've been a vegan for 25 years. I've pretty well lived on fruit and veg. And you know, I'll go huge amounts of time without even any what we would call protein foods like nuts and things. And I've I'm nowhere near protein deficient. Um, you look at guys like Douglas Graham who's lived on fruit his whole life with just a little bit of with leafy greens as well and he is fit as fuck, big guy, muscular, very strong, been doing it his whole life, he's now late 60s or something and um, he lives on raw food only, he doesn't eat any cooked meals at all and he's just a living example of, of how protein efficient a human will be um, you know, without consuming any meat at all. So the idea that people were having to eat humans to get their protein levels right, I just think is absolute bullshit. Well, Tom goes on from there, but you get the point. Um, and I, I don't, as I said to Tom, I don't know the science well enough to really argue. I mean, I believe there's some issue with amino acids because uh, I was a vegetarian for a few years and I remember 
being told that it was really important to eat rice and beans uh, together. And there were other combinations that were really important so that you had essential amino, amino acids that could help digestion and all that. Um, but I mean, I don't really know the, the merits in terms of the science, but it does strike me that meat is a prized food in every hunter gatherer culture I know of around the world. And meat is harder to get than other stuff. It takes a lot more time, skill, energy. It's dangerous depending on what you're hunting. Uh, and so there must be, it seems to me, some very strong uh, health component um, to meat. And you even look at uh, chimps and bonobos, they will chase down Colobus monkeys if they can. And it's a horrible thing to witness. Um, they'll rip them apart and eat them as soon as they catch them and they'll expend a lot of energy trying to catch them. So, uh, you know, I hear from vegetarians and vegans sometimes on these issues. And Tom, by the way, sounds like a reasonable dude. He, he doesn't uh, seem like a zealot on these issues, but often uh, there is a sort of zealotry behind this. I've, I've had people write to me claiming that humans have been vegetarians for millions of years, and it's only very recently that they started to eat meat. There's no evidence for that, and there's a lot of evidence against that. The evidence that's presented uh, when I get these emails from people is, is very um, unconvincing, to put it lightly. Um, so this is not... A commentary on industrial farming, which I think is horrible, uh, and I think the way we treat animals will be one of the great scandals uh, when we look back at the 20th, 21st century, particularly. I think, um, you know, having animals in a pasture and, you know, grazing in the mountains and the way it was done until early to mid 20th century, I don't think that's particularly egregious. Um, I think you're basically trading uh, constant food supply and protection to the animals, protecting them from predators in return for milk and meat and so on. I think that's sort of okay. I think hunting, um, not trophy hunting, not blasting away at birds as they fly out of a cage that they've been stuck in, um, but actual hunting. Um, I don't really have an ethical problem with that. An animal that lives its life in nature as as nature intended uh and is killed relatively quickly and painlessly uh, certainly as compared to being pulled down by a pack of wolves or a grizzly bear if we're talking about elk or something like that um i don't really have a big issue with that in fact i'm probably going hunting in about a month for the first time in my life now, I may come back from that experience uh, with a different opinion, but at the moment, I don't really see an issue with that. And the fact that meat is so prized around the world, to me, seems to be a convincing, compelling argument uh, or, or factor in favor of the idea that it is an important component in the human diet. Having said all that, I haven't done 
independent research on Marvin Harris's research to confirm that the islands where cannibalism was reported uh, actually were cannibalistic and not ritualistically cannibalistic and actually did not have um, domesticated source of meat like pigs uh, and so on. But Marvin Harris was a highly respected anthropologist, the head of the anthropology department at Columbia University, published a whole bunch of books. If he had been full of shit, I think people would have reported that. Thanks for your message, Tom. It's always nice to uh, to to think about these things and to um, you know to be challenged on opinions that I express. And uh, yeah, whether I agree or not doesn't really matter. Um, I don't really have super strong opinions about anything. I don't think I'm, I'm willing to be, uh, to change my mind. Uh, I was talking to a friend, uh, speaking of intelligent people, I was talking to a friend who's, um, we were talking about, uh, how to say about humility, the nature of humility. And, uh, so she was saying, like, I was, I was trying to convince her to own her intelligence and uh and she was saying oh i'm not i'm no different i'm you know blah 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 i'm just another and and you know i was thinking like it's interesting how people who are doing this and and i've done this and i think we all do this it's a it's an impulse toward decency it of like i'm no better than anyone else i'm no different than anyone else and the thing is, the first statement is true, the second isn't. The I'm no better than anyone else is true, but the I'm no different from everyone else is not true. So let's say you are particularly beautiful, unusually beautiful. Does it make sense for you to go through life denying that? You know it's true. You see the way people react to you uh, versus your friends when you're out. Uh, you know, maybe you were offered a modeling contract, maybe clothing companies send you their clothing and, you know, for free because they want you to wear their clothing. There are objective indicators that you're more attractive than the average person, right? That can be, uh, observed. Now the person who's like that, who's saying, no, I'm no different. I'm no different. I get it. You're trying to be cool and decent and kind, but here's the problem. It's not true. And if it's not true, it leads to a mess. So let's say, apply this to other things. You're more intelligent than the average person. Okay, how do you know? Well, because, you know, you consistently score much higher on standardized tests and you eased your way through school without even really working and doing homework and studying and everything was just easy for you and you graduated early and you jumped ahead a couple of grades and you won these awards and blah, 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 whatever the objective thing is, right? Things just come to you easily. Does that make you better than other people? No, it doesn't. Does it make you smarter than other people? Yes, it does. And the problem with conflating those two things is you don't give other people the, it's hard you think you're being compassionate, but in fact, you're not because you're denying that there's a difference between you and them. There is a difference, which means ideas that come easily to you aren't going to come so easily to most people. So slow down 
and explain it in a way that is easier for them to understand. Compensate for the difference between the two of you. That's the decent thing to do, not pretending there is no difference. Take another example. You're born into wealth, or you're just lucky and you had a job, you out of college at Google, and you invested in Facebook, and now you got a whole shit ton of money. Now, if you go through life pretending that you don't have more money than other people, you're going to be that asshole who wants to eat at the expensive restaurant and then split the bill. I don't want to hang out with you. I want to hang out. I have some very wealthy people in my life. But when they say, hey, let's go to Fiji for the weekend, I say, no, you rich motherfucker. I can't afford to fly to Fiji for the fucking weekend. Right? Like, don't. You're forgetting that we're in different positions uh, can create problems. Or take it in another way. You're a big, strong dude. And we've got some suitcases to carry. Now, if if you act like everyone's equal, you're going to make the old lady carry her suitcase while you carry your suitcase. Well, that's not cool, dude. Pick up her suitcase. You're a big, strong dude. Take care of the other people. Acknowledge that you're different. So it's interesting, you know, the big, strong dude is not going to make the old lady carry her suitcase. That's sort of a given. But what if, instead of being a big, strong dude, he's just really smart? Is he going to pick up extra weight intellectually and try to help? Or is he going to pretend there's no difference? So I think the key is, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are more intelligent than the average. Now, maybe that's me being narcissistic, thinking like, oh, you must be smart if you want to listen to me. I don't know. But I feel like this podcast appeals to people who are unique, different, uh, not you know, part of the sort of, you know, we're the ones who stick our nose under the fence and get killed. So uh, I think that's the general demographic of this podcast. So probably a lot of you are aware of the fact that you're smart, you're or and smart doesn't necessarily mean mathematical calculations. It means you think outside the box, you come up with answers other people wouldn't have thought of. It's a it's a form of creativity. It's a form of intellectual courage. It maybe it's just a it, maybe it's just curiosity. I don't know what I mean by smart necessarily, other than that cognitively um, you're more effective than most of the people that you meet in life. And if that's your case, if that's your situation, you're not doing anyone any favors by pretending that isn't the situation. What you're doing is creating, you're perpetuating uh, situations that um, sort of amplify the unfairness. So the thing to do is to say, acknowledge I'm smarter than most people. I'm more attractive than most people. I have more money than most people. I'm stronger than most people. Whatever it is, acknowledge it but acknowledge it with the understanding that it doesn't fucking matter. And it confers upon you responsibility to help people 
who aren't as gifted as you are. And gifted is the word because it's a gift. You didn't earn that. You didn't earn your beauty. Most people don't earn their wealth. And even if you did, you were lucky. Nobody's got a million dollars who wasn't fucking lucky in one way or another. You're big and strong. You didn't earn that. Right? We, most of what we have is a gift. And until you acknowledge that you've received that gift and have some gratitude about it, it's very difficult to behave with compassion for people who didn't happen to receive that particular gift. All right, time for another tune. This is a cover of Billie Jean, that Michael Jackson song by Chris Cornell. I think he gets, uh, he gets to some of the passion and despair of the song. Hope you dig it. She was more like a beauty queen from a movie screen I said, don't mind, but what do you mean? I am the one who would dance on the floor and around She said, I am the one who would dance on the floor and around Said her name was Billie Jean And she caused a scene And all her heads turned with eyes That dreamed of being the one Who would dance on the floor and around People always told me Be careful what you do Don't go around breaking young girls' hearts Mama always told me, be careful who you love, careful what you do before the lie, lie becomes the truth. Billie Jean is not my lover, she's just a girl. Forty days and forty nights, the law was on her side. Who can stand when she's in demand? Her schemes and her plans. Cause we danced on the floor and around. So take my strong advice. Remember to always think twice. Do think twice. She told my baby that we'd dance till three And she looked at me, she showed a photo My baby cried, his eyes were like mine Cause we danced on the floor in the round People always told me, be careful what you do Don't go around 
groundbreaking young girl's heart Then she stood right by me The smell of sweet perfume This happened much too soon She called me to a room Hey Billy Jean is not my lover She's just a girl Twice, always think twice. All right, here's an email from um, a guy named Justin. He's been doing great for the last six months. Everything's going well, except for one thing. I've fallen in love with a girl. (laughs) That's interesting. Everything's going well, except I've fallen in love with a girl. How is that a problem? I honestly don't mind how she chooses to express herself sexually. Okay. However, I have a deep, deep fear of her falling in love. Uh, Interesting typo. It says failing in love with someone else. The fear leads to confusion and pain. And sometimes I feel like it's going to be the death of me. I don't think it's a healthy state of mind. And I'd like to know if you have any suggestions on how to deal with this. Yeah, I don't think it's a healthy state of mind um, that probably the best thing in your life becomes a reason to feel great pain, which it sounds like you're definitely feeling. It sounds like maybe she wants an open relationship of some sort. Um, Is that what's hinted at with, uh, I don't mind how she chooses to express herself sexually. Um, I heard a, a line recently, someone said, Uh, The rational mind can only go as far as the healing process, something like that. And um, what I took that to mean was that you can't necessarily think yourself out of a problem uh, from within the problem, that there are structural changes that we need to make in our personalities or our, our, our ways of thinking and then apply those to the problem. But it's like, I don't know how to say this. It's like, it's like you, uh, if you want to climb a mountain, you have to be fit, like overall fit, not just, you know, strengthen your calves, and I feel like life is like that. Like you're going to have problems that are that require a level of general mental, psychological fitness, spiritual fitness. And you don't train for climbing the mountain while you're on the mountain, right? That's just going to be really painful. So... You're in this situation and you're feeling a great deal of distress because there are elements within you that aren't fit. They're not 
ready to take on this challenge. And uh, so you're probably going to fail. It's probably you're going to mess it up. And that's okay. Because what that means is you weren't ready to climb that mountain yet. Now, the problem is if you just go back to the valley and sit around until the next invitation to climb a mountain, you're not going to be ready for that one either. So what you need to do is take this as an opportunity to increase your fitness. And what do I mean by that? I mean either with a therapist or through your own ruthless honesty looking at yourself sometimes that's possible sometimes you really need a therapist or someone to guide you and call you on your own bullshit but in any case what it means is going back and figuring out what is the source of this pain now there's a certain amount of fear of loss that comes with any peak experience any great connection that you have with another human being, there's going to be an element of, oh, I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose this. And a recognition that everything gets lost. This is this insight forms the basis of Buddhist philosophy, basically, that everything you love will be, will end. Every process you love will end. You can't avoid endings. And so there's an intrinsic frustration in life sometimes where as a wonderful thing begins and happens, you're like, oh, fuck, this is going to end someday. I fucking hate this. Every parent knows this. Every parent looks at a little kid and says, I don't want you to grow up. You're so fucking beautiful right now. I don't want you to turn into a, you know, 10 year old. And then they look at the 10 year old and I oh, the 10 year old so magical and intelligent. And it's so cool to see their personality emerging. And every moment is so fucking great that you want it to continue forever. But if that were to happen, time would stop and you'd be dead. Nothing would, nothing would live because life is the process of change and change requires death. Birth requires death. There is no birth if there is no death, right? There's no darkness. There's no light if there isn't darkness. There's no hunger. There's no appreciation of food if there isn't hunger. Like all these, this yin and yang thing, right? I'm not going to beat that drum forever, but... So there's a, there's a certain amount of that fear of loss that's intrinsic to any wonderful experience that you have but it sounds to me like this is a, a higher level this is a deeper fear and so what you need to do is you need to go back and find where does that come from does that come from uh, one of your parents abandoning you when you were young or or not feeling um connected or embedded in the family does that come from someone close to you dying that you never really wrapped your head around that um, does it come from a fear that no one will ever love you again that this is the only woman and you're not attractive or what, whatever it is that's magnifying this totally rational and reasonable and kind of unavoidable nuisance into the major 
problem that you're experiencing, that's where you need to work. That's the fitness that you need to to deal with. This woman in particular isn't the problem. Her behavior isn't the problem. Her desires, that's not the problem. She's a reflection of this problem within you. And that's where you need to work out the situation, work out whatever the problem is. And you're going to keep seeing this problem in your relationships with other people until you work it out because other people are mirrors. The people we have relationships with, they hold up a mirror to us. And so the fears that they provoke in us, the annoyance, the anger, those are coming from within us, reflected in them, and we see it. And we blame them. And every time we blame them and we locate that problem in them, what we're doing is avoiding growth. We're avoiding figuring out what's really going on, which would allow us to then move to a more sophisticated kind of relationship with a different kind of person, maybe. I mean, it's not about the person. It's about the relationship. So that's my advice. My advice is don't think about this in terms of this particular woman, think about this in terms of you. What is it in your life, in your experience, in the structure of your personality that is generating all this fear and anxiety around being in love? Much to my surprise, people write to me often asking me to read poetry. I haven't done that in a long time, and it always surprises me that people actually enjoy that because uh, I, I, I love some poetry. I, I'm one of my great loves in my life is literature of various sorts, and I'm thinking actually of doing a second podcast. I may have mentioned this. I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the past, but I may do a podcast that's about literature because I kind of feel like in another. If I had another life, I may have been um, a literature professor, which is sort of what I had in mind when I was in college. Um, anyway, this poem is one that I remember from back in the day uh, when I was studying poetry that, uh, that I was amused by, and it fits in pretty well with the whole question of love and youth. And um, it's actually this, it's called To His Coy Mistress, and it's by Andrew Marvell. Uh, or maybe it's Marvel, I don't know, M-A-R-V-E-L-L, uh, British poet. And it's basically like so many love songs uh, in the modern era. It's basically a dude saying, come on, baby, give it up. Give it to me. Why are you holding out? It's This is basically like, Marvin Gaye's sexual healing, um, just written in a different way. Had we but world enough in time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. So what he's saying is, if there was enough time, 
it's fine that you would be coy and not want to have sex with me, but there's not enough time. In fact, it, this reminds me of Carsey Blanton's song, Smoke Alarm. That's basically what Smoke Alarm is. The guy saying, you're going to die one day, so let's go fuck, baby. Um, and then he uses this great, this great phrase, my vegetable love should grow. My vegetable love? What the fuck is he talking? I think he's talking about his dick there. I don't know. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. A hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. Okay, so that's the first part there where he says, he's basically saying, I understand why you want to go slow. I understand you want to take it slow. And you deserve it because you're fucking gorgeous. And man, if I if there were enough time, I would take forever and just savor every moment of this. Uh, but, he says, at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust and into ashes all my lust. And then one of the great couplets ever. The graves of fine and private place but none, I think, do their embrace. So he pulls up death, just like Carsey Blanton's song. At my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. That's death. Death is coming. It's coming for me. I can hear it coming behind me. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity, right? That's death. There's nothing. It's eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. So that's her tomb, right? Worms will be uh, uh, eating her virginity. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. Lay that on a baby next time you're in a bar. Can I get you a drink, honey? Uh, anyway, next, last stanza. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. Fuck yeah. Carpe fucking diem, baby. That's what that's about. To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvel. All right, I'm going to play a tune called El Mar, which is the sea. And it's by this um, this band, those Hermanos Gutierrez, uh, who are obviously, I don't know where they're from originally, but they live in Zurich, Switzerland. And um, 
They're not very well known. Uh, a friend of mine, I think, found them on Spotify or something and turned me on to them. And I really dig their sound. Um, they're, they're just the, the style with which they play is very kind of groovy and... Um, well, you'll hear it's it's instrumental, uh, no words to the music, but uh, I really like it. It's it's something that relaxes me. Anyway, this is called El Mar, and it's from a record called Ocho Años. You can get their stuff at hermanosgutierrez.ch uh, or on iTunes or wherever you purchase your music or look them up on Spotify or whatever you use. El Mar, Los Hermanos Gutiérrez. Huh? Los Hermanos Gutierrez. The album is Ocho Años. Uh, the other album I have from them is El Camino de Mi Alma, the uh, the path of my soul. Um, and all the songs have that same kind of groovy, relaxed feel to them. So 
Highly recommended. Uh, okay, let's read another email. Uh, animal magnetism. This is from RJ. Hey, Chris, could you please share your thoughts at some point on animal magnetism? I always thought it was a woo-woo subject until I actually started to experience it on some levels. First, through abstinence from sex, masturbation, and pornography, I noticed that people are considerably more drawn to talk to and be around me. Uh, I'm usually quite shy and reserved, but with abstinence, I feel like a different person, and I often get comments about my aura changing. Secondly, every time I've tripped on psychedelics and have been in a public park, every time without fail, I've been approached by strangers and they seem to want to strike up conversations. Um, in sober reality, I feel like the world and people are a lot colder. And in the UK, where I'm from, strangers almost never talk to each other. I've gone years without speaking to strangers on the street, and yet every time I trip, I find myself being approached by strangers. Like, do they know I have LSD in my system? Um, so what are your thoughts about this? Well, okay, let's see. First thing, the whole abstinence from sex masturbation and pornography thing. Uh, I, I don't really know about that. I've never abstained, so <laughs> I can't really comment. I, I spend most of my time trying not to abstain from those things. Um, but I can certainly see if if you feel any discomfort with those things or shame around them or whatever, uh, abstaining could make you feel better about yourself, make you feel more relaxed, make you feel... Um, uh, more distant from an aspect of your life that you're uncomfortable about uh, can make you feel more empowered because you've made a decision and you're sticking to it, which I think is a very important um, quality or, or uh, result of doing things. You know, I was talking with someone recently about Wim Hof and the whole cold shower thing. Um, I don't know that there's any real physiological change in taking a cold shower in the morning to me the physiological change is more around jumping in a river that's really fucking cold or jumping in the ocean the way Kyle fucking Tierman does every day in Santa Cruz like that yeah that shocks the system but you know standing in the shower under hot water for a few minutes and then turning it down to cold and like eh, okay it's cold whatever I don't really think that does much physiologically on a purely physiological level but I do think that deciding to do something difficult or uncomfortable and then doing it I think that has an effect that changes your sense of yourself and your own agency and your own sense of control over your life in the same way that meditating regularly teaches you that you are not the voices in your head you are the being that hears the voices in your head and therefore you have control you can decide whether to hear or not you can decide whether to listen or not um, and that's a very subtle yet powerful distinction right are you the car are you the vehicle that's careening down the highway or are you actually a driver of that vehicle can you take control of that vehicle as long as you think you're the car you can't drive it but once you realize no actually i'm sitting in a car then you can start taking control of it and i think that's the value of meditation it's the value of 
Wim Hof's, um, at least the cold shower stuff, I think is more, you know, the radical stuff sitting in rivers and ice baths and stuff like that, I think is also very deeply physiological. But um, yeah, I think that's an important component. So you deciding you're not going to masturbate or have sex for a while or drink alcohol or eat meat or what, whatever it is you decide you're you know you're gonna fast you're whatever it is you decide you're gonna do something and then you do it I think that has um, a tonic effect on us that maybe people notice right maybe you just put out an energy of a guy who's in charge of his life and people are attracted to that I don't know about the the whole chakra, you know, the erotic energy being uh, stored up and coming out through your eyes or something. I don't know about that. Um, But the other thing that he mentions here, the psychedelics, I've experienced that as well. I have had incredible experiences with people and people that I would normally never have interactions with. You know, if I'd been out in the woods tripping on mushrooms and then I roll into town when I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling okay and I, you know, just the conversations are so easy and the interesting people who just walk up to you out of the blue and there, I definitely feel that there's a, an energetic uh, kind of a, a field of energy around us that we recognize in each other uh, almost always on a subconscious level. And people are drawn into energy that is welcoming and friendly and open. And and I do feel that I have noticed that effect, certainly when I was tripping. And I've also noticed it with animals. I've had some incredible experiences with wild animals that would normally flee at the sound of a human being, for some reason they came to me when I was like twice river otters have come right up to me once in Alaska and once in Mexico when I was sitting by a river um, tripping. And uh, yeah, and I've had other very bizarre experiences. I don't know if I... I don't know. I I need to do a Toma again. It's been a long time since I did one. I don't remember if I told the story about the one and only time I ever took peyote. But um, both that and the first time I did ayahuasca, there was some sort of bizarre um, reality shift, like the time-space continuum got distorted somehow. In both those cases, the weirdness happened before I was, before I did the drugs uh, or the medicine or whatever we're calling it these days, um, which suggests that this feel that I was talking about isn't just something that sort of goes around you through the physical world, but in my experience, it's something that also extends into the future somehow. And or or the past i guess i'm not sure it's 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 like an orb uh around you that that around me that sort of moves through space and and people and animals 
react to it, but also through time. And so things happen in weird, unusual ways around before and after the, the event. Um, yeah, I don't know if, I, I mean, I can't really tell that story right now, the, the peyote story or the ayahuasca story, but both of them illustrate that to some extent. Okay, I just paused and looked back at the archives, and in fact, I haven't told either of those stories yet, much to my surprise. The last Toma was Toma 17, which was episode 274. Whew, man. Uh, and that was about Barcelona and the tequila story. So, yeah, I haven't even, oh, my God, there are a lot of those stories to tell. So I will, I guess I'll jump ahead and, and do a Toma about my first ayahuasca experience. I don't see it listed here. So, uh, and the peyote experience as well is pretty, pretty crazy. Um, anyway, what the hell am I talking about? Yes, yeah, so I do agree that there is some sort of a field uh, around us certainly when we're tripping and and that animals respond to that. And also people, you know, native uh, traditional hunter-gatherer people or, or people spend a lot of time in nature, they talk about aligning their energy with the natural world in a way that the animals will actually come to them. Uh, I've, I've read many accounts of hunter hunter-gatherer people who talk about hunting as accepting the offering of the of the animal that the animal comes and basically sacrifices itself presents itself to you the hunter um and that's why the experience of the hunter is one of gratitude and the first thing that they do upon killing the animal is to thank the spirit that sent them that animal, the, the um, natural world that provided that food and that life for them. So, yeah, I think that we can change our energy and that people and animals in the natural world will resonate with it in, in many different ways. All right, now I'm going to play one more song and I'm out of here. So this song, uh, I'm ashamed to say, I sort of forgot about. A guy sent it to me um, a few months ago when he heard me talking about my dad dying. And um, it's called Friends Are Lost. It was sent to me by a guy named Mike, uh, Mike Howe. And um, yeah, he wrote a really beautiful email. He said, "It's um, I wanted to send you this tune that I wrote for all the loved ones I've lost along the way. You talked recently about the loss of your father, and um, uh, I wrote this for my mother-in-law, uh, who we lost on New Year's Eve. I was honored to be asked if this tune could be played at her funeral. And I thought you might uh, enjoy the tune when remembering your loved ones. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful piece of music. And uh, so anyway, I'm going to end with that today. 
And uh, I wrote to him and asked if I could play it. He said, of course. And I asked if he had a website I could mention. And it's MikeHowe.com, H-O-W-E, MikeHowe.com. And uh, yeah, so if you enjoy the tune, you can go to his website and maybe download some others or just say hi and tell him you appreciated it. All right, this is Friends Are Lost. Thank you for listening. Uh, I really appreciate you people out there. And I'm looking forward to meeting a bunch of you this summer when we're off on the Vanthropology Tour. So if you're anywhere in the Rocky Mountains or the West Coast of the United States and Canada, drop me a line at, uh, where is it? Intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. And uh, we'll stop in and say hello. Also, uh, I'll probably be doing some events like in, you know, I did this thing in Boulder last year where we just put out word like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be at this, at this brew pub on Thursday and 50 people showed up. It was fantastic. So I'll probably do some of those along the way, you know, maybe something in the Bay area, something in Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, um, and maybe in Montana, you know, it's as, as I'm making progress i'll announce it on social media so you can follow me at twitter or instagram i'm that chris ryan at both places Um, or of course i'll announce everything in the podcast so if you stay current with that i'll let you know what's going on all right thank you for listening thank you for supporting this podcast however you do it and um i hope things are going great for you out there this is friends are lost by mike Mm howe (music) 